please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. These verses have become the occasion for an extended digression or an excursus concerning the service of song in our worship. The question is, what do these verses teach us about our service of song? With the reference to harps and a new song. And the answer is much in every way. But in order to glean the proper fruit from these verses, we need to do some background work. And sometimes sound and satisfying conclusions only come in a difficult way through a process of protracted concentration on an issue. We have broad considerations in front of us. Our, our outline is really twofold. First, we've been, we have been looking at a, a foundation of principle, ethical principle, that is necessary in order to understand the service of song. And then we are going to turn our attention to the history of the service of song, its development, if you will, in the history of the church, beginning with biblical times, but I, I think we'll also at least uh, look at the history of song even after the apostolic era. You have heard me say that with respect to principle, if you're going to understand the discussions concerning the service of song, exclusive psalmody, and the disuse of musical instrument, you must first understand the regulative principle of worship. And if you do not first have a command of this principle, these considerations will remain forever a mystery. Indeed, you won't even understand why anybody's even talking about these things at all. Two definitions for the regulative principle of worship, and they are of such importance that I don't mind to repeat them. 
I was glad to see that this morning that I had repeated them enough that even my children were able to repeat them back. This is a good thing. The popular definition and a very useful definition of the regulative principle of worship would be this. If it is not commanded, then it is forbidden. The mosaic definition is the same logically, but sometimes a different phrasing, a different expression can be a very helpful thing. Do all that God has commanded in his worship. Do not take anything away from it. But do not add to it either. And really, it's that last phrase that's the controverted one. Almost everyone would agree that when God commands something for worship, we should not omit the commanded thing. The question is, are we free to add to the commandments of God with respect to worship? This, the regulative principle of worship denies. And without this understanding, any sort of discussion of exclusive psalmody will remain an impenetrable mystery. Last week, I took a rather large step backwards to ground the regulative principle in the second commandment. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graved image. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for the Lord thy God is a jealous God. The express wording of the second commandment prohibits the use of idols in worship. And we spent almost two hours simply discussing how do we get from the express wording of the second commandment, forbidding idols in worship, to the regulative principle of worship, which is considerably more broad, takes in a great many more things than idols of wood, stone, or metal. Anything that's not commanded is forbidden for worship. We begin to look at the expanding significance. We noted that the second commandment is not just addressing the object of worship, but the means. In other words, the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me, uh, addresses uh, the proper object of worship, which is God himself, and denies any improper object, which would be any other object, any created thing. These would be improper objects. The second commandment certainly concurs with the first in that we are not to be worshipping a creature. We are not to take a creature as an object of our worship. But the second commandment does a good bit more than that. It also forbids the worship of the true God by means of idols. And we saw this in Deuteronomy chapter 12. You remember um, God says, you, when you go into Palestine and you move in the midst of uh, idolaters, do not inquire how they worship their gods. Uh, when you see the way that they do worship their gods, thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God. This is a prohibited thing. We are apparently having a, a locust plague is <laughs> broken out in our midst. So the true God is not to be worshipped 
by means of an idol. And yet still we have a little further to go because we're wanting to say that the true God is not to be worshipped by any other means other than what he has commanded. And we see Moses taking that in in Deuteronomy chapter 12 as well. Remember the logic of the passage. Verses 1 through 4 of chapter 12, he says, Thou shalt not worship the Lord thy God by means of idols. And verses 5 through 28, he says, do all that God has commanded in worship. And then verses 29 through 32, he says, do not worship God by means of an idol or in any other way than what he has commanded. We talked about the logic of Moses and how he gets from the uh, language of the second commandment to this broad application. And namely, we looked at two principles. First of all, that when God uh, forbids something in the Ten Commandments, he also prohibits all other sins of like kind. So it's not just the declining uh, from God's worship by means of idols, a particular kind of human invention, but declining from God's worship by any kind of human invention or intrusion into the worship. And we also uh, looked at another principle that when God forbids something for his worship, the contrary is commanded. So when he forbids the use of idols, the contrary in this case would be the requirement that we adhere to God's worship is given. And then the contrary of that would be any decline from his worship whatsoever. And that's really the the logic of Deuteronomy chapter 12. That is, it's a logical movement. This morning, I wanted to take up a handful of other considerations concerning the regulative principle. And next week, I do anticipate us getting into the history of the service of song. But I do think that this principle is so very important for everything that follows that it's, it's worth a very full consideration. Before moving on, I wanted to simply mention that the regulative principle of worship has a much broader biblical base than the few passages that we have talked about. And that's very important to understand. We cannot look at all of the passages, but um, as you read through the Bible again, with this principle in mind, I think that you will begin to see it quite literally everywhere. To uh, relate to you something of my own experience, I do remember reading the theology books that have been composed that deal with this subject and seeing what are called the the classic texts. They call them the the loci, the classic texts that people go to in order to prove this doctrine. But those of you that know me well know I'm a great lover of biblical commentaries. I'll sit down with a commentary and just read it all the way through. Somewhat unusual use of commentaries. But I remember working through old Andrew Willett's commentary on the book of Leviticus. Those of you that are familiar with um, Willett know that he breaks his commentary up into six parts. All of the parts are not important. The sixth part is always the moral application of the text. And as I was reading through uh, Willett's commentary on Exodus, 
Once we got into the tabernacle legislation, which goes on for about half of the book, the moral application after every single one was, and now we see that God has given us a form of worship and we are not to decline from it, but do it exactly as it came from his hand. And you remember the text of Exodus and how this would impress it upon a person's mind. This is how you're going to make the Ark of the Covenant. You're going to make it just like this and only like this. You're not going to change it. You're going to construct the tabernacle in just this way. You're going to make it exactly like this according to these exact measurements. And you're not going to change it. And when you begin to worship in it, you're going to worship in this way. And you're not going to change it. This made a profound impact upon my mind. Because at the end of every chapter, Will, it would bring this home. And then I read through his commentary on Leviticus and he did it all over again. And I started to understand this is not just about a few passages. This was to be deeply ingrained upon the people of God. If your experience is like mine, it will be something like when you first learned Calvinism. I don't know if in your first studies of predestination you experienced it something like this. You heard the doctrine explained, and then you heard a couple of classic texts exposited, maybe John chapter 3, what does it mean to be born again at the motion of the Spirit, or John chapter 6, no man can come to me unless he's been drawn by the Father, or Romans 9 through 11, Ephesians 1 and 2. These are classic texts that have always been used to prove this doctrine. But didn't this happen to you once you learned the doctrine and then you began to read through the Bible again? You started to see it everywhere. And you realized that this was interwoven in the, in the fabric of um, divine revelation. The regulative principle is very much like this. You'll see entire books taken up with it. Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Chronicles is very much taken up with it. The work of the prophets, as they call the people of God, away from their idols and back to the true worship of God, time and time again, you'll begin to see that this is a very great biblical concern. It's not just about the few texts that we have considered. I bring these, these texts not because they are the full picture, but rather because they are an adequate proof. In some ways, the simplest way and the most direct way to prove the doctrine. But the most powerful and convincing way is to get the, the doctrine in mind and read through the Bible again. And you'll see that this is indeed a great theme of the word of God. I want to spend most of our time this morning on a different matter. What I have called the trans-testamental character of the regulative principle of worship. By this I mean that the doctrine is taught in both testaments. And this ought not to be surprising to us. There's a, there's a common objection. Uh, runs something like this. It's part of the evangelical mindset in our day and age. Well, we grant that this doctrine is taught in the Old Testament. And that God punished the people strictly when they uh, declined from the, uh, the form of worship that he had commanded them. Whether by subtraction or addition. But uh, don't we under this new administration have much greater latitude and liberty in this regard? 
The short, the short answer is no. That there's nothing about this that has changed. And I want to uh, bring forward a, a handful of considerations. And some of these things will again require some protracted concentration to get to the bottom of uh, bottom of them. But first, and perhaps the most difficult, is that the regulative principle of worship as a commandment is moral in its character. And because it is moral in its character, it is always binding. It is binding upon all people, in all places, in all times. Here we reap a little bit of the fruit of last week's careful work. You remember I was at pains to show that the regulative principle of worship was within the scope and application of the second commandment. And once you grant that this is uh, an application of the second commandment, and you grant that the second commandment is moral, then you see that the regulative principle of worship is moral. And you're probably well familiar with the idea that the moral commandments are binding upon all people in all places at all times. I wanted to go a little bit further than that common notion and ask the question, why? Why is it that moral commandments are binding upon all men in all times, Old Testament and New Testament? And I want to do this uh, by demonstrating the difference between what's called moral law and positive law. Moral law and positive law. If I might say so by way of preface, this is, this is an old distinction that has been very much neglected in our day and age. Some of you may never even have heard, um, heard of positive law at all. Almost everyone will have been familiar with moral law. But the, the loss of this bit of uh, ethics is a great loss. This is a very important point. So get your uh, thinking caps secured and get ready. This is important, but some of it is probably going to be new territory. Moral law is said to be grounded first in the nature of God, the nature of his rational creatures, and the relationship between God and his uh, uh, rational creatures. And that's why we say that they don't change. God's nature doesn't change. And as creator, his relationship to his creation as a created thing does not change. And so Old Testament or New Testament, 4000 B.C. or 2000 A.D., the relationship remains the same, even as God's nature remains the same. Any change in these Commandments would imply either a change in the nature of God himself, which is impossible, or a, uh, a change in the creator-creature distinction, which is also impossible. So moral commandments, God commands moral commandments because they are consistent with his nature and his relationship to his rational creatures. An illustration of this would be the first commandment. 
We are to worship God, the true God of heaven, and only God. It's implied in His nature and our relationship with Him as rational creatures. God is the Creator. God is the highest and supreme good. And because that is, that is true, He recognizes it to be true, and He requires all of His rational creation to acknowledge it. This cannot change. And so the first commandment is esteemed to be moral, and it does not change. It did not change when Adam and Eve were first created in the garden, even to this present day. Uh, our argument here is that the second commandment, and thus the regulative principle of worship, are moral. They are grounded in the very nature of God and his relationship to his rational creatures, and so it cannot change. Positive law is different. Positive law is grounded in the will of God, not in his unchangeable nature. So theologians will say this is not grounded so much in God's immutable nature as it is in his free and sovereign right to command his creatures. His commandments, no doubt, are given for wise and holy reasons, but these commandments can change because the reasons can change. So, for example, um, God could command a church under age to worship by means of a tabernacle because they were like children. And he's teaching children by means of pictures to grasp spiritual truths. But because uh, the church in the new administration has come of age, and is prepared for spiritual truth delivered in a spiritual manner, we worship primarily by means of the Word. God speaks to us in a spiritual way by means of words, and we respond to Him in a spiritual way in our uh, prayers and in our praises. The, uh, the second commandment remains forever the same, but the reason for the various forms of worship changed, and so God issued different commandments positively. An illustration of this would be some, also the, uh, the prohibition of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is grounded simply in God's will, not in his nature. It could have tested man in another way if it had pleased him. And you might even ask the question, why that particular tree and say not the tree next to it or five trees over? And the only answer to that is it's not God's nature, but rather uh, his will. No doubt he had wise and holy reasons for the designation of that particular tree. We're not denying that. We're just saying we can't go any further than this, that it was his will that it be such, all things considered. The Ten Commandments have been widely recognized as moral. Usually the only controversy is with respect to the one in the middle, the fourth. And uh, we'll take that up at some, some later time. My argument would be that the fourth commandment is also moral. That if God gives us duties to tend the field, as he did to Adam, and also the duty to worship, there must be a suitable and fitting proportion of work to worship. 
We all know this to be true. Uh, every man in this room who has a family knows that he has a duty to work and provide for his family on the one hand, but also, say, to tend to his wife's emotional needs on the other hand. We might not be able to say at any given time what's the perfect proportion that's to be given with respect to time and attention to each one of those duties, but we do know when a man has gone terribly wrong, don't we? When it's become out of proportion and his conduct is considered immoral. So it is with uh, the worship of God and the conduct of our other commanded work. There is a suitable and fitting proportion. Human wisdom might have been able to tell us every day of worship is too much and once a year is too little. But we needed God's help to know the perfect and suitable proportion of work to worship. That's the moral content. The designation of the day would be a positive commandment. Why the last day of the week up to the time of Christ? Why the first day of the week after the time? So the fourth commandment, we would say at its heart, is moral, but it comes in a positive dressing. I digress. The second commandment is moral. And the question is, how do we know this to be true? In your outline, I believe you have Confession of Faith 21.1. And this is very, very helpful to us. So I thought we would read it and analyze it. Confession of Faith 21.1. The light of nature showeth that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all is good and doth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart, and with all the soul, and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself, and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. This is the introduction to the chapter on religious worship. The Westminster Divines begin with the first commandment. Notice they say that the, uh, the uh, nature of the creator's relationship to his rational creation uh, implies, necessarily implies, worship. God is revealed in nature as a true and living God. He is revealed as man's highest good, bringing with him all benefits, every good and perfect gift. And this lays upon the rational creature the obligation to acknowledge that it is so, that is, to worship. The Westminster Divines go on, however, and they say that this worship is not revealed in nature. Man wouldn't know how to worship God unless he had revealed further. The second commandment is also moral, and you can you can see this in an analysis of the purposes of worship, which in Scripture are primarily two. You might be able to designate some others, but 
primarily two. The first uh, purpose of worship is the glory of God. We see this over and over again as uh, uh, psalmists. The psalmist will frequently call upon us to, uh, uh, to yield unto God the glory that is due or owed unto his name. So this is one of the great ends of our worship is to glorify God. The second great end of worship is the edification of man. Do you remember Colossians 2 last week where it said in uh, holding fast to the head in our worship and that form of worship that he's commanded, the body is what? Nourished. That nourishment runs down from the head to the whole body. In order to fulfill these two great ends in our worship, revelation is necessary. Simply put, without revelation, we would not know anything about God. So how could we glorify him or be edified by this truth? So revelation is paramount. It is necessary. God must reveal himself. We might call this the content of worship. If we're going to display his glory, we must know something about him for the display. This is going to be the content of worship. But at the very least in man's fallen condition, and I think no doubt in the garden as well, God must also ordain a suitable means for both the, the display and the edification of man. You might say it like this, so that the truth might be displayed truly or in a manner that is true. Work something like this. You'll want to read this when you when you have some occasion. But if you look at Isaiah chapters 40 through 48, there's there's a, a refrain. It comes in a variety of words. But over and over again, Jehovah will ask the question, to what will you compare me? So here he's pleading his own glorious being and its display. And then he talks about the inability of man to correctly display it. He says, you want to display, uh, you want to display me by means of idols, but they have hands, but they don't, the hands don't work. They don't do anything. They have eyes, but they don't see ears, but they don't hear. Is this a suitable comparison? If you attempt to worship me by these things, far from gaining knowledge concerning me, you will remain in darkness. And far from displaying my glory, you will so obscure it that it will be a different God altogether. Man needs help. We, need, we not only need the truth, but we also need to know the proper means to display that truth so that the true, if you'll tolerate my stutter, is truly displayed. Or displayed in a true manner, or in a manner that does not, uh, in turn, obscure that truth. If this was true before the fall, how much more so after the fall? Romans chapter 1 says that um, sinful men not only need revelation of God himself, and also how to display his glory in worship, but uh, fallen man is actively uh, motivated to obscure that 
God reveals himself in creation. Sinful men do not want to worship him. So what do they do? They suppress the knowledge of God that's revealed in the creation. And they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for the images of corruptible things. Basically, they create for themselves a different God. And a different way of worship that's suitable to their gods. They worship creatures rather than the creator. They invent for themselves uh, gods that can be pleased with them even in their sinfulness. Gods with whom they can be at peace. You think of the Greco-Roman gods. There's not a single one of the Greco-Roman gods in the pantheon that can accuse any of you of anything. Because with respect to morality... Uh, almost every single Greco-Roman god it was worse than almost every single one of us. So how are they going to accuse us of anything? This is one of the ways that men, wanting to remain theists, sidestep the true God. They want to continue with a certain form of religion, but they invent different gods and then different means or modes of worship that are suitable for those gods creatures, nothing but creatures, parts of fallen creation that can hardly blame us for anything. Remember the work that we did last week in Colossians chapter 2. The fallen mind of man is no reliable source for religious information. Remember all of the emphasis upon puffed up in the fleshly mind, the mind intruding into things that it could not possibly know. And then you add Romans 1, and a mind that is actively interested in perverting the truth. And uh, uh, this fallen mind of man does not know what is for its own edification, well-being, or good. This is part of what Paul talks about when he talks about the necessity of the renewal of the mind. Not only do we know very little about God, but we try to corrupt what we do know. And we don't even know what's for our own good, our own true spiritual advantage. So I hope that you're seeing the necessity of the second commandment and its morality. To change the second commandment would imply a change in God himself. And that necessary relationship with his creature, namely the necessary relationship of revelation. We could not know him unless he was pleased to reveal himself. Let me try just one more pass at this so you can remember it and hopefully understand it. Because revelation is necessary, God must establish his worship, both its content and its mode, its content and its form, and therefore its moral. There's nothing that has changed about that from the foundation of the world to the present time. Now, as we turn our attention to the regulative principle, uh, biblically as it's portrayed in both Testaments, and this will be a confirmation of our former reasoning. What I'm, my argument there, if you've, if you've understood, is even if the regulative principle of worship was never mentioned in the New Testament, it wouldn't be necessary. Once you prove a law to be moral, you've proven it to be grounded in the very nature of God himself, his relationship to his creature, and these things don't change. 
the case would be closed. But we can confirm our former reasoning by simply taking a brief look at the biblical work that we've already done. We found the regulative principle of worship in Deuteronomy chapter 12. But as I said, not just there, but we we looked specifically there. And you remember that um, for a millennium and a half, Deuteronomy chapter 12 in its express words uh, was governing the church and its actions until the time of Jesus Christ. When we turn to the New Testament, we found that the situation not, not changed. Remember, uh, Paul told the Colossian Christians that the human mind is not a legitimate source for the forms of worship, but rather hold fast to the head, Jesus Christ. You have a fullness of sufficiency in Jesus Christ and in his prophetic office. He has already told you in the scriptures everything that you need to do in order to be pleasing to him in your worship. Everything. He's fully sufficient in his prophetic office. So you don't need to go to Greek philosophy to learn another mode of worship in order to be pleasing to God. You don't need to go to a pagan uh, religion. You don't need, in our day and age, you don't need to go to pop culture or anything else. Jesus Christ, through the apostolic preaching recorded for us in Scripture, has already told us everything that we need to do in order to be pleasing to God in our worship. And Christ, who has called all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in that very book, cannot be supplemented with respect to wisdom and knowledge. He doesn't have a part of wisdom and knowledge that's in need of supplementation. He is in possession of all. Finally, I won't, um, we won't do this at length, but The Lord Jesus Christ himself teaches this in Matthew 15. The Pharisees plead with Jesus a bit of what you might call domestic or family worship. The Jews had invented a new form of worship. In the Old Testament, you have all sorts of ceremonial washings. If you had been defiled by leprosy, for example, or touched a dead person, there were what we call ceremonial baptisms. This uh, was necessary in order to make you ritually clean or ceremonially clean so that you could return to the tabernacle or public worship of God. The Jews were not content to remain with that, but the tradition of the elders was that when you came home from market, where there could be many things ceremonially defiling that you weren't aware of, you would baptize your hands. This isn't a bit of hygiene, you have to understand, because washing the hands for hygiene is a good idea. But they would baptize their hands as an act of religion to cleanse themselves of ceremonial pollution. God had never commanded this. This was the tradition of the elders, one of those commandments that the Jews like to um, add. Very significant. The Pharisees come to Jesus complaining that his disciples don't do this. They say, why don't your disciples honor the tradition of the elders and do this? And Jesus then refuses to bind his disciples to anything other than what God himself had commanded for their worship. He said, you said it not the commandments of God, but the commandments and doctrines of men. And he refuses to impose it upon his disciples. 
to anticipate a bit of where, where we're going, if you want to understand the operation of your own session and its history, you have to understand this, the refusal to impose upon Christ's disciples anything other than what Christ himself has commanded, nor suffering any imposition by any Pharisaic reasoning. If you would understand the history of this congregation, you must understand that. And this brings us really to um, the next point. I, I hope that the case is taken, that the regulative principle is moral and that you have a full and complete proof of it in both testaments. But I wanted to deal with another objection and a, and a point of potential confusion. Probably, if you want my own estimation, you'll have to judge for yourself, probably the point of confusion in the contemporary age. It's the relationship between the regulative principle of worship and Christian liberty. And the objection runs something like this. Uh, you know, under the Old Testament, for whatever reason, God was very strict. But now, as Christians, our liberty is greatly enlarged. You'll even hear... Um, Platitudes, otherwise pious, but not piously used here. Jesus Christ has made us free from these sorts of strictures. And what we ultimately have here is a competing definition of freedom. Or where is it? Where, uh, where does the true liberty of the Christian dwell? The evangelical definition, if you think about it very carefully, is basically we are free to do what we want in worship. That's the liberty that they're pleading for. We are free to do what we want. The Reformed definition is we have been set free from the commandments and doctrines of men to worship God as he has commanded. And you see, those are very different things. We're not now free to do what we want. We're set free from the commandments and doctrines of men to worship God as he commanded. Our true liberty is our adherence to God's commandments. In your um, outline, you should have Confession of Faith 20, Section 1. This is on Christian liberty and the liberty of the conscience. This is a beautiful statement, so we'll read it at length. Those old uh, Puritans, known for being so stuffy and stodgy, actually declared the liberty of the people of God, the true liberty of the people of God, the liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan and dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave and everlasting damnation, as also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto him, not out of a slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind all which were common also to believers under the law. But under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law, 
to which the Jewish church was subjected, and in greater boldness of access, access to the throne of grace, and in fuller communications of the free spirit of God, than believers under the, under the law did ordinarily partake of. This is, uh, the scope of this is considerably more broad than our immediate subject matter, but just by way of summary, they first declare the liberty of Christians in all ages, and by that they mean Christians going back to Adam and Eve. They say that um, Christians in all ages, believers in Jesus Christ from Adam to the present day, have been freed from sin its guilt, power, and punishment. That's a brief summary of what they've said here. And that Christians in all ages have a free access to God in Christ. These things have always been true. But then they say that our uh, liberty under the new administration has been enlarged. Uh, we'll come back to this in just a moment. They say we're freed from the yoke of the ceremonial law talk about that we have greater boldness in coming to the throne of grace a boldness that's grounded in the fact that Christ is crucified buried and risen again and now declared not in types and shadows and in shadowy ways but openly declared as a fact of history which gives us great boldness in coming to the throne of grace and we have a fuller communication of that free spirit since uh, Pentecost. I think they're uh, driving it there. You remember the church under the old administration is portrayed as being a son, but a son that has not yet come to years. And so in some ways not treated much better than the servants of the household. He's the heir of all things, but not ready for his inheritance. And so he was subject to some hard rules until he came to such maturity that he was ready to come into his inheritance. But now we've received that full and free spirit of adoption that is constantly witnessing to us that we are heirs and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice here that it is said that they have been freed from the yoke of the ceremonial law. At the Apostolic Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, Peter describes the ceremonial law in this way. He's speaking particularly of circumcision, but all of the ceremonial law as attached to it, as part and parcel with it. He describes it as a burdensome yoke that was not to be laid upon the Gentiles. Consider the burden. For, uh, for the ceremonies, the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, there was only one place in the whole world where these things could be done. If you can imagine this religion coming to us in this remote part of the world, what a great burden it would be indeed for men to try to make their way three times in a year to the other side of the globe, to go up to Jerusalem. This was a yoke. It was a burden. The travel was inconvenient. And as the people of God spread more broadly in the world, more and more inconvenient all the time. It was expensive. Not just in travel, but in gold and silver, first fruits, cattle. All of these things made the worship of God very expensive. And, at least for men and boys, it was very painful. 
and circumcision. All of these things were a heavy yoke attached to the worship. But now consider our worship. It can be performed anywhere. And we've actually put that to practical exercise in the history of our own congregation. We have quite literally worshipped God here and there and everywhere. Just interestingly enough, never in a church building. Everywhere. This worship of God can be done in the King's Palace in England. It can be done in a mud hut in Africa. It has been uh, purposefully composed to be done anywhere. It is not expensive. If you can speak and hear, if you can come up with water, bread, and wine, three of the most common substances in all of the world, you can have the fullness and the totality of the Christian worship. And all of the bloody signs have been taken away. So none of this is physically painful for us. So the question comes here. So they talk about us being set free from the ceremonies, that that bit of God's positive law, God himself as lawgiver, had changed. He had abrogated. But the question is, that were we then set free to do whatever we want? Confession of Faith 22. Listen to this. This is so very important. And this is a declaration of your freedom, your liberty. God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it in matters of faith or worship. So that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. I want you to notice here, very much like uh, what we did last week, he talks about uh, uh, first the general system of Christian ethics and he talks about the Christian's freedom with respect to that three-category system Things commanded, things forbidden, and things indifferent. And he says, in this system, no human authority can command you to do anything contrary to God's word. No human authority can command you to do anything contrary to God's word. This is your freedom. This is what it means to be set free from the commandments of men to obey God. So when the Sanhedrin beat the skin off Peter and John's back. And they have the commandment of Jesus Christ ringing in their ears, go into all of the world and preach the gospel. And then the Sanhedrin says, you will preach no more in this name. Peter and John say, how we might wish that you had commanded us to do something else. But you judge for yourself whether we ought to obey God or men. We will obey God set free from the commandments of that human authority that was contrary to God's word. More narrowly, in that two-category system of doctrine and worship, it says no human authority can command you to do anything contrary to God's word or even beside of it. 
Now that says a little bit more. That means no additions. That's the two-category system. You remember? Either commanded or uh, forbidden. If it's not commanded, it's forbidden. There's no third category of permitted or allowed. Do you remember? This says no one can add a third category of permitted or allowed. This is to encroach upon your freedom as a Christian people. So uh, no human authority when it comes to worship, which is our proper subject matter, can command you anything that is contrary to God's word or even beside of it. I will tell you there is a great irony right now in American evangelicalism. It's the ironic assertion of freedom. Imagine a minister and you'll start to see the problem. We've lived this problem as a people. A minister says something like, um, oh, that Old Testament was so constricting. We're free from the binding of the Old Testament. We're free to do what we want. And then he adds forms of worship that are in addition to God's word or even beside of it. And thus he robs the people of God of their very freedom while he says that he's asserting it. We've been set free from the commandments and doctrines of man even yours, good minister, to keep the commandments of God. So even while you're asserting freedom, you're taking it away from us. So you can imagine how um, if I were to uh, invent some particular things, I decide that since we can do whatever we want, uh, perhaps we'll add uh, a section of drama to the morning worship. And in doing so, I have encroached upon your liberties. You've been set free from God, from that, by God from that sort of thing to hear preaching, to hear the word read, to pray. And so even while I would be pleading freedom, I would be putting you in shackles, in chains. A lot of times um, uh, people will say, well, you know, not only the minister, but... All of the people wanted it. But this is nothing other than to consent to our chains, but they are chains nonetheless. And you, the divines say here at the end that to uh, give this sort of absolute and blind obedience is to destroy the liberty of the conscience and reason also. The simple fact of the matter is you've not been set free to obey me as the minister. You've not been set free to obey the session as a group. You've not even been set free to obey your own longings and desires. You have been set free. You are the Lord's free man to serve him. The uh, name that our church took when we left the parent denomination was Liberty and Grace Reformed Church. The word grace was included because as a church we want the gospel always to be in the foreground. But the word liberty was included because this is a monument to what happened so that it will not be forgotten. Our contending was so that no, mere, no merely human commandment with respect to worship or the government of the church would be imposed upon God's free people. That was what we believed. That is the principle for which we contended. 
That is the principle for which we suffered uh, the discipline of the church. And I can I can testify uh, in the Lord. I speak the truth and I lie not. Our session is very circumspect concerning such things. If it cannot be proven from the word of God, we don't say anything about it at all. We're very careful not to make any uh, imposition upon God's free people because you are the Lord's free men and you don't belong to us. And so this is the question. If you would maintain your freedom, this is the question that that must be asked when it comes to the government of the church and the worship in the church. Let it be proven from the word of God. And as a free people, you can always ask that question. Let it be proven from the word of God. Show me from the scripture, but it is only in the asking of that question that you will maintain your liberties. You do not believe in a doctrine or accept any practice of religion until it is proven from the word of God. And my commitment to you, some of you know me better than others, in spite of rumors to the the contrary, I'm not sure that I've ever wanted to be in charge of anything. Not my not my family and certainly not uh, in the church. It doesn't make me a very natural leader of men. Again, I speak the truth in Christ and I lie not. I have no desire to control anything. I drew the sword in our contendings because uh, the powers that be would encroach upon your liberties. Take your liberties from you. And as a minister of that same king who was having his prerogatives encroached upon, as a good king's man, it was my duty to uh, interpose. But I do not want um, I do not want to train you to be um, yes men or bobblehead dolls. One of the reasons I'm at such great pains in preaching to teach you the principles is so that you can ever be Christ's free man, not the Not the pastor said such and such. I hope that you never quote me that way. Unless you say, pastor proved it from the word of God in this or that way. I hope that when you cite Calvin, you cite Calvin that way. This is how Calvin proved it from the Bible. It seems a convincing proof to me. Calvin would not want to be cited as if he were an authority beside the word of God. So remember, we have planted a monument stone in our name. And to maintain that liberty is not a very complicated thing. It's just remembering to ask the question. Can it be proven from the word of God? And don't accept anything until it can be. Let us pray together.